It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, I have a question for you. Yes. Go. Shoot. I'm ready. How did you first learn about like gear and like how to be safe in climbing? Um really? Yeah. Okay. So I was uh going to Colorado State and we were in the dorm and um I had gone top roping and was very excited about climbing. I met some guys on the floor. They showed me some cams and stuff like that. And we actually used the, the wall. There's like these like kind of stacked sandstone and they had little gaps between, between them. And so they went out and like these guys that knew a little bit more about climbing, Scott Fitzgerald, um, Jonathan Thiesinga was there. Um, this guy, Bob Gobel and showed like put the cams in these things and showed me like how they worked and, you know, did the classic thing where they're like, pull on this, you know? And I was like, sure. And I was like pulling as hard as I possibly could and it wouldn't come out. And, um, was it a cam or something else yeah, that you were pulling on? Like a TCU. <laughs> um, here, pull on this bro. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, that was actually, I remember very distinctly the first times of like seeing how gear worked and, and placements, at least with cams and things like that. And then another thing I remember is interesting is that Again, top roped a few more times, and so I knew how to belay like a top rope and stuff like that. And Bob, who was he was like the guy of the group that really had climbed a lot. This guy Bob Gobel still still remember like him as being this you know sort of mythical figure. Like he'd climb with cool people and done rad shit. And so we were gonna go. Him and I were gonna go to Eldo, and he was like showed me how to belay a leader. By there were these kind of big cement sort of I don't know slabs that stuck out from the building, and you could jump up and like hand traverse across these slabs, and so that's what he did. He he, I put him on belay, and he jumped up on there, and he would like traverse out, and he would tell me like how much rope to give, hmm. and then he would like traverse back, and like I'd bring it back in, and oh, interesting, sort of teaching me how to keep like a loop between him and I, and yeah, and then like traversed out like far far away from me so like i had to figure out like how to do it without really being able to see him and stuff like that yeah yeah and he just just came back and forth a few times and was like that's how you belay a leader if i fall you pull the brake just like normal so oh cool yeah so Um, that was those were like the very first times i saw gear place and then then following bob and and some other people on roots is and pulling it out is how you learn how to how it worked when did it came to you, did you ever like read like books and stuff? Did you like dive into that world of like education? No, it was all just like in like real world learning. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, Freedom of the Hills has always existed, as far as I know, and that's like the common reference. The editions of Freedom of the Hills is like where you can see how cams work, and I mean, I sort of vaguely like maybe sitting there while everybody was smoking weed or whatever, I'm like kind of flipping through that book. I'm sure it was around, but mm-hmm. certainly not like with any intent. Mm. Um, you, you learned it. I mean, really honestly, by taking it out mm-hmm. was the idea, like follow someone who knows what they're doing. And then every time you take a nut out, you like, before you take it out, you look at how it's placed. Right. Yeah. 
Right. I mean, that's how we did it. I was 18, invincible. Yeah, but the important, but the important thing is, is that we didn't fall on gear, right? Like for a long time. Like I placed hundreds and hundreds of placements that may have sucked, but I didn't fall on them, so I have no idea. Yeah, you know. Um, that that's very much the opposite of how I I learned. Um, and I was much more bookish in in my you know upbringing with gear and stuff. And I I did read Freedom of the Hills, and I did read john long's books and mm-hmm. i even like uh a lot of the big wall stuff that i learned came from printing out like shit i read on internet forums like really? Passa Piton's p like I, I i actually printed out like a binder's worth of of posts of his about like just how it works and, right you know and it was sufficient it was enough information to like give me the understanding to have some competency to be able to like climb El Cap or whatever mm-hmm. and you know know a little bit about what I was doing but also just you know I was smart enough to like go with people who had done it before and stuff and who were able to teach teach more in, in that real world setting but first and foremost it was just like diving into books and like and and reading about like how how it all works right yeah that's fascinating because it I mean I guess we're far enough apart in age that you would have had like an ac- access to the internet at a much, you know, at a more like uh formative age. It was early. Yeah. It yeah. was like early internet. It was yeah. like the first forums, the first, like, uh, yeah, the first information that was kind of percolating up at that time about climbing. Right. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it was, um, and yeah, and the internet literally didn't exist until I was past that phase of my right. climbing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so, um, we're in a, a a totally new world now where um i i see a lot of like instagram influencers for back of, lack of a better word who like what what they're influencing is like gear and guiding and how to build anchors and stuff and it seems like there's this whole new generation of people who are like learning about how to build anchors just from tiktok or instagram or whatever um and so I think that's an interesting change in our uh, the way that knowledge is kind of passed on and created in in our sport. Yeah, the accounts I follow, you know, it's it's guides and you know, so people who are trained AMGA across the board. And so I mean there's an intent there of like a sort of noble intent of like let's get this knowledge out there so people don't fucking die. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's also, I guess there's also like, I'm, I'm ginning up business for myself as a guide, I suppose, like mm. anything on the internet, there's, there's part, part commerce in it. And so, so that's totally cool. But then at times I'm like, I watch some of these videos and, you know, as this old guy who survived, I guess you could say through all this learning that, you know, where we were doing things wrong, but there, it was right enough, so to speak. Yeah, I, I'm kind of like, well, fuck, you know, like, isn't this overkill? And then a lot of times the reason I think that is because once I go out into the world of, like, experienced climbers that just climb and aren't aren't guides, like, nobody does any of this shit. Right. Like, nobody. Like. Yeah. I mean, I I don't climb with anyone that's, like, that's rocking a quad on the reg. That's and, and that's kind of like the thing where it's sort of this 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 dissonance where I'm like, okay, I know this is the latest and like the safest thing, but 
you know, just like driving the speed limit, like you drive, you know, after you get your driver's license, you drive the speed limit for like 24 hours Mm -hmm. because you're like, no, I've gotten my license and I'm going to be responsible. And this is my dad's car and blah, blah. And it's like 30 hours later, like two nights later, you're fucking hauling ass and you got a beer in your hand, right? It's like, you know what I mean? Like That's just like normal human behavior. And I think it's the same with all a lot of this stuff. Like there's the safest possible perfect thing. And then there's what you kind of like really do, do in the real world. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I wasn't sure we were going to go there in this conversation, but the there is- Like um, drinking and driving? No. Well, don't I thought, do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Now, I wasn't sure we were going to go to um, go into like this, like kind of weird uh, guy. I guess you know what would we call it? Guide influencer posts, right. like whatever that po- that genre of social media content is. But it's an interesting thing to consider because the the sort of regular basic stuff isn't really sexy enough, or maybe even worth posting in the, right. in the minds of those creators it has to be some kind of new te- new kind of tip or new information that uh that justifies itself as like an interesting post that's worthy of you know lots of likes and stuff and so i mean that's that's kind of like where this like quad anchor came from and uh, i i think i think it's kind of like an internet phenomenon to some degree <laughs> um when did I certainly you start hearing about the quad like like two three years ago yeah, right. like it wasn't like that long ago right. like I'd never heard of this fucking anchor you right. know and it it's not even clear what purpose it serves beyond you know being something that people assume like it, it it's kind of the uh, the anchor that if I assume that everyone else around me is too dumb to like build their own anchor, then I could give them this thing, which seems to be more foolproof. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like so condescending in a but way. But it's, it's not like, quiet. It doesn't matter which ones you clip, you can do it and you won't die. Right. You know, like it's, that's the selling point for the, for the quad. And, but yeah, anyway, just to finish with the point I was making, it's like that, it, it's interesting to consider that there is like a, a bit of, um, there's trends in gear and trends in anchor and trends in tactics that are being uh, amplified on social media. And I think a lot of people are falling under that sway. I don't know if that's good or bad. If it, as long as it works, it works. So, mm-hmm. you know, like that's kind of the bottom line with all climbing gear and anchor stuff, but it is just a, kind of like a weird, a weird world. Um, and it feels a little dangerous and reckless on some level. I appreciate it in one way. That's how climbing has, our gear has gotten better and that we have gotten safer as climbers. And and certainly like when I started guiding and I'm doing podcast air quotes right now as a fucking 23 year old at Colorado Mountain School in Estes Park with like minimal training, AMGA didn't exist. Guide services just trained their climbers and I'm also doing like air quotes there as well. Like I, there's no, if an AMGA person came in now, they would like be appalled at whatever it was I was doing. Like we managed and I think back on it and I'm just like, fuck, like I am actually like Jesus. I, who knows like what actually was happening and, you know, and, and, and I had been trained, but the, you know, the owner of the company was this old school dude, you know, it's like, 
clip in one piece and you're fine kind of dude. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I appreciate the progression. And I also realized that like this nerding out on this shit is how we went from, you know, body belays to a figure eight, to a stick plate, to a ATC, to finally a Grigri. It was people, you know, examining what the problems are and what the, the, the risks are and what sort of the margins are and trying to improve them, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I'm, that's kind of the thing that like, I appreciate about it. So somewhere down the line, the AMGA or the UIAA, usually they're the ones who do it, the, the Euro people. Like they did the testing and they found the thing and they said, well, what if we do this and this and this? It'll like eliminate this one little teeny problem and therefore it's better, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I totally appreciate that. But what I don't, what, what kind of worries me or whatever, it's the sort of think for yourself crowd. Mm -hmm. They don't worry me. I'm saying the people who don't sort of like realize that like there's these real world things that you're going to have to fucking deal with and this thing that you saw on the internet may or may not work mm -hmm. and if you bog down in the fact that this thing holds 2,000 pounds and this thing holds 1,800 pounds of or newtons or however many like you're still like well in the clear but you're bogged down by the fact that like this thing is slightly less equalized or all these sorts of things, that's just not going to work out there mm -hmm. in the real world. And the thing about the quad that I always find funny is it's like, they're like putting the quad on like two fucking bomber bolts. Mm -hmm. Like two bomber bolts is the easiest thing to fucking deal with in the world. Like we don't <laughs> need like 35 ways to deal with two bomber bolts. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's always the thing. I'm like, just put two quick draws on it. You're fine. Like, yeah. let's not quad out here. You know, <laughs> On top of a sport climb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a world of dogma, and the, and the dogma always bothers me. Mm. Because the dogma is is when you're like, okay, what if this happens? Are you going to be able to actually like break the dogma and still make a safe anchor when it doesn't all work out exactly the way you thought it was going to work out? A lot of the certainty that people bring to those conversations that they have that their way is the right way to do something or another um, is really unfounded because I think that anyone who's been climbing long enough just knows that there's a million ways to skin the cat, you know, and there's a million anchors that you can build and there's a million ways to belay and there's different techniques for belaying and you need to appreciate and understand all of them and mm -hmm. what their limitations are and what their benefits are and not be so yeah dogmatic is a, is a good word for for that kind of mentality um but i i i was thinking back to your you had, you had a post that you found you you took a photo of an old climbing magazine mm -hmm. like what was it a tech tip or something yeah it was an old tech tip in a 2002 climbing magazine um actually pertinent to the show i was doing my pitch 19 research yeah um and it, so it was an it was a uh alex huber was on the cover or something like that my friend lent it to me and i found this amusing tech tip about how like you know petzl itself was telling the world to use their their relatively new thing the greek -gri. and um the tech tip was basically like what i think a lot of our friends still do and um 
How to belay with the gri-gri. How to belay with the gri-gri. Yeah. And, uh, and so I posted on, I took a picture of it because I thought it was like, haha, look at this. Like, this is the, the good old days kind of thing. But then in, within the comment on the post, I admitted, I was like, yeah, but I still do this. And, uh, and you know, it's basically like, look at your friends that have been climbing for, for like 15 or 20 years. It's what they do too. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I need to totally explain it, but it, it doesn't like automatically always keep like a super solid five finger break hand on mm-hmm. the Grigri. Because when the Grigri came out, that was kind of its thing. Like, hey, this fucking thing will catch you regardless. Not that you just let go completely, but anyway. I, I, you take your break hand off to like trigger the cam so that you can feed out slack yes. during clipping situations. But not and entirely then- off. Not entirely off, but then you then yeah. you have it back on. Yeah. And um but that that yeah, so anyway, the, the tech tip that you posted was a sort of quote unquote old school method mm-hmm. of, of belaying. But but is, like from from Petzl. From Petzl, yeah. yeah. This from, was from like from the, the guys who invented the thing. This was how they wanted you to And not use just Petzl, but the actual people, the persons, the two I think it was like two or three people were very seriously involved with with designing the the Grigri, and this was their like, we are going to sell this to you. This is how you belay it right. with it, kind of thing. Um, and that has since been replaced. Do you remember what when that was that I this it, new method of using the Grigri? And I'll just describe it as quickly or succinctly mm-hmm. as I can. Where the new method is you you take your pointer finger and you kind of latch it under the rib of the grigri and you use your thumb to depress the cam what with the, the rope in in the crick of your hand and like that's in kind a of loop. in a loop yeah. yeah and it's so the the rope is kind of always in the palm of your hand and the but yet you're still allowed to kind of activate the device in a way that allows you to feed slack to people right cuz the problem with the grigri is you can't you have to hold the the cog down the the um cam down to get rope to come out of it right yeah yeah that's the that's the new way which has then been refined in a few different iterations over the last few years i think mostly by climbing gyms so the new way though is not it's not that new at this point but it was no. it, it was probably what 10 years ago yeah. or something like that so um but yeah so you posted this thing that was 20 years old and it was kind of showed this old way and but then i admitted that i still do it Yes, and that got you into trouble. I got I mean, uh, it was as if I was just like using my grigri to like crush the skulls of kittens. <laughs> I mean, people were pissed <laughs> like that I was basically killing climbers on the reg with my terrible way of blame. Or using your esteemed platform as a, a notable that, podcaster to, to That actually you're right. That was a big complaint too. Like I was somehow like my endorsement of this like old way of doing things was going to talk some like 10 year old into playing like this. And, mm-hmm. and even though it, it's worked for me for 20 years and I've literally never killed another climber with my blade technique that, that you know of that I know of <laughs> that 10 year old was going to go out there and just be dropping people left and right. Yeah. And it, it just, and like I defended myself and, and basically like, I kind of went at it like that, like this sort of dogma thing, like, okay, well, you know, all right, you, you're saying this, but what's really happening when, when, you know, like when the device, when someone falls, what's really happening? Is your brake hand actually stopping the rope? Like, watch, because mm-hmm. it's not. 
like the cam is way faster than you are. Yeah. And your 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 brake hand is literally a a backup. Yeah. To the cam catching the rope. So I, I was trying to engage people on that level, like not like, oh no, you're fucked and that's stupid, or I'm stupid. You know, I was just like, yeah, think about what you're doing. Think about what happens when someone falls with the gree-gree. Think about the ways in which other ways in which you use it where you don't actually have your brake hand on. Like most people who repel with it, like on a big wall. They'll let go with both hands to clean a piece of gear or something mm-hmm. like that on the reg. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, so wh- why is it okay there? And why, you know, and the, and the funny thing was, is that in a previous post where I admitted that I don't like to use a Grigory on a multi-pitch climb, I use my ATC on a multi-pitch climb, like that got not equal, but got a lot of pushback as well as if I was nuts mm-hmm. to not bring my Grigory on a multi-pitch climb. And the main argument there, and I and I want to believe that some of the people were making both sides of this argument. The main argument with there was that like if I got knocked out by a piece of rock or something happened, the Grigri will catch the person regardless of whether I'm dead or unconscious or being swarmed by killer bees or whatever happens. Just like asleep, yeah, or asleep. You know, or like Just roll on a sig, you know, whatever it happens to be. Like the Grigri will catch the climber. We all know that, right? That's the great thing about the Grigri. It'll catch the person. Mm-hmm. So then at this new thread, like a few months later, where I said, yeah, I belay like this, where like my break hand isn't, it's on there, but it's like not on there sometimes. All of a sudden I was like, you know, like I said, I was like killing people left yeah, and right. Yeah, you're this pariah. So I was like, well, does it catch people when I'm unconscious or not? Or do I have to like have like a soup? I mean, which is it? Like, is it going to do both things or like, you know what I mean? Like, it seemed to be a contradiction because we all know that it catches you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It, so it, I just backed, I backed off of both things. I was like, I left them up, but I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the room. You guys can argue amongst yourselves. To some degree, that mentality, I think, has always been in climbing in different forms of an, one kind or another, but it does seem a particularly interesting thing to consider now, a days where a lot of people are learning. Or, well, I guess there's like this litigious aspect to it where gyms are sort of mandated to teach one way as the, as the only way to belay, and that's it. And a lot of people probably learn that that's the only thing way to do it and any other way is or like not only bad but it denies you the the privilege of being able to lead belay in a gym right which is like the biggest the worst offense that you can that you can have it's as fa- a climber failing <laughs> your lead yeah. test in a gym <laughs> exactly in front of everyone yes yeah um not having your your little tag on your harness that <laughs> <laughs> alerts the staff that you've been certified which I get, like you gotta have, like you gotta have a standard in a gym. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. But it's born this, it's born this certainty, this this dogmatic view of of um, climbing, which I don't think is healthy because it, it goes back to what we were just talking about about how there's many ways to do stuff, and mm-hmm. having that understanding of what is actually happening, right? What is what is what are you actually doing? What is what's going on in this situation and understanding the physics of the anchor and the physics of the belay device. And you, it allows you to um, have some kind of like flexibility or ju- not flexibility, but just like a broader understanding of 
adaptability. Yeah, adaptability. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's what that's you're a, looking for. Exactly. Yes, because that's the that is the thing that you're after in climbing. Because in climbing, shit goes wrong, and the you you were hoping to get to that two bolt belay anchor at the next ledge, but you missed the other anchor, and now you have to build an anchor in the middle of the wall. Right. Oh shit! What do you do? You like you need to know how to how to handle those situations because if you ever try to climb a route longer than a sport route, you're gonna get yourself into a situation like that at some point in your climbing career where you need to adapt mm-hmm. and you need to do something that you haven't done before, and you need to break the rules and you need to do know what's safe enough to feel okay that you're not gonna die, and um. I think your like your story, your anecdote about being dragged is indicative of that kind of mentality that uh, is a little worrisome because I don't think those people will understand what to do in those situations because they're just trained on one way of doing things. I know how to belay that new way right. with the Grigri, and I only the only reason I know how to do that is so that I can climb in the gym or mm-hmm. pa- pass a belay test pass in a the belay gym. Test, yeah, and I don't ever use it any other. S- as soon as the uh, the the gym tester turns their eye, and I've you know I've been given my certificate to to have fun in the gym, then I go back to my old way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, but let me ask you this: in all fairness, okay, because I did the the whole th- like the people like attacking me. Well, actually, the people attacking me can go fuck themselves. Um, <laughs> but like the people who are like trying to sort of civilly explain you know, why this was bad and the new way was better. Um, I'll listen to your civil argument. Yeah. Um, it, so I started to think like, okay, well, am I, am I just, you know, an old dog, new trick? Like I can't, I can't adapt. Like, is this, is this way better? Does it work as well if you learn how to use it? Um, so, so what would you say to that? Like, are you sure that the new way, you know, which allows you, and again, like we're, it's hard to describe this thing on a podcast, but well, the um, new way's benefit is the idea that the rope is always in the palm of your hand, and it's so, in the palm of your hand, but it's not. You don't. You still don't have a full grip on it, right? Because the way I I do it, and the way you do it, and the way most of my friends do it, frankly, you you do still have some fingers on the brake, and, and that was the kind of thing. Is so this post. Or the attack, the the sort of rebuttals on this post, it did make me go back and look mm-hmm. and like think about it, and again, like it was it was sort of like yeah, it's a little it it, it you have your brake hand on there like maybe a tiny bit more securely, but I found it detracts from some other things that you have to do, like give rope quickly. Uh, manage the rope that's on the ground if it gets tangled up and stuff like that. I, so I I found like pros and cons of both, mm-hmm. but neither one of them have a a break hand on the rope the way you have a break hand op- on the rope with a with an ATC. Right, like you do not have your fist wrapped around the rope right. in either method. Yep, you have a few fingers, but one of them sort of appears as though your hand is more on it. But at the same time, I started looking at them like, no, you're. Your index finger and your thumb are are not on the rope. Mm-hmm. It's just your the bottom three fingers of your hand. With my method, it's the top three fingers if you if you call the thumb a finger. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, it's it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same. Yeah. And except for everybody was like, no, it's way fucking different that yeah. we 
I'm like, you do not have your grip on the rope because you can't because you have to let the rope go through the device. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. But back to my question, like, have you ever examined it or are you just like, no, this is the way I do things. This is what I'm going to keep doing. Shit. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never dropped anybody. So I'm, I'm good. I think that Cause that's yeah. not a necessarily a logical way of doing it. No, it's not. I, yeah, I think that's a good crit- critique. Right. Um, I think that having a method that you're comfortable with and being competent at whatever your method is, is the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but like, yeah, just- but the thing is, hold on. Sorry. The thing is, is that I, I, the reason I went back and examined it all. So I guess thank you for the, for the post and for the comments because it did is because I didn't want to be that person that I used to criticize. Right. Like I was saying when it, we talked about guiding, like the, the guy that ran the guide company, like even I knew at 23 as like this younger climber, I'm like, this shit, is, he's not doing things right. right. Like, this is the old way of doing things, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he was a little bit averse even to cams. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, eh, it's... So I, I don't, like, I don't want to be that guy either. So that's why I kind of went and reevaluated the whole thing and, and decided, like, well, what are the pros and cons? I think there's, I think it evens out still. I think so, too. I don't think that there's one obviously superior method for right. playing with the Greek there are you know there are some things like just to broaden the conversation a bit Mm -hmm. to like anchors or other things there are some things that do seem like they've been replaced to some degree like the sliding x is a an anchor i don't really use anymore no and that was something that was like super common at the time and it just seems like there's better ways to you know to clip two bolts together and not have you know not have that potential for extension or whatever um so I don't know. I mean, and, re- and perhaps better redundancy as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like there is a progress, there is progress. And mm-hmm. so are we like, that's the thing I worry about. Are we like being sticks in the mud, like resisting progress? And it's funny because you and I teach this climbing class twice a year, generally um, with Steph Davis. And, and we, we have this debate with, with our students or in front of our students every time that we, uh, that we do that class. And, and honestly, partially we do fall back on like, ah, fucking worked for me. Right. You know, it's just like your grandpa with his like, you know, stick shift, like yeah. belching diesel pickup truck. Like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it's like, nah, grandpa. Yeah, it's because my like, Yeah. It's like your, your dashboard's made out of steel. Like you're going to, and then your fucking steering column's going to go through your chest when you fucking hit something. Right. Like we have improved this, you know, like yeah. it's okay to have a car with an airbag. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Like, are we anti-airbag? <laughs> yeah, no, I because th- I, I we drove our whole lives without them, <laughs> without even wearing seatbelts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the way. Our, you know, it's like our grandparents had the lap belt. Yeah, well, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's like no, it's going to cut you in half. Um, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I think that the gree gree thing is is not a, a very good example of that. I think there's no good clear-cut winner for the best method and i think you're exactly right that your method and or the old method the new method and whatever other method are basically all pretty similar because the safety of the greek relies on the ingenuity of the device itself there's the scream and put your hands up method in the air grab your nuts when your <laughs> the climber falls it's like literally that's what jim's be, count on that's yeah. why they have them preset on the fucking top ropes <laughs> 
totally. Um, but yeah, there is progression. I don't know if the quad is the future or not. Um, but I do think that people should be. I, th- I think that the progression should be more about like the mental approach and understanding how the gear works and understanding that there's different ways of doing things. And I think that people should also just be skeptical of what they see online because there's really good seasoned, uh, intelligent guides out there sh- sharing new tips and new ways of doing stuff. But um, there's also a lot of choss out there too. Totally. Yeah. I don't want to be the old dog, you know, that needs to be put out, you know, put down, if you will, because I just won't, I won't like give up my shitty methods of doing things. So <laughs> I, I try to reevaluate and that's, that's kind of just what I want is I want people to evaluate yeah, and, and really think about like the realities of, of what it's going to take to climb something and what it's going to take to go safely and also, you know, move along quickly because that's, we've all at least experienced climbers have been there where you're just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting for someone to fucking set up some sort of anchor. And you're like, dude, let's go, you know, because moving quickly in the mountains is, is a safety Mm -hmm. issue, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and not spending, you know, 30 minutes trying to figure out how to like equalize, redundize (laughs) all the things on an anchor can, can be the difference between being caught out in a storm and getting hypothermia and all those sorts of things. So there's this, there's this always this constant weighing of the factors that go into climbing safely. And it's not just about, you know, whether you're got six mil or seven mil or eight mil cordelette Mm -hmm. on your fucking quad, Mm -hmm. which is like a monstrous debate out there raging as we speak, the amount of millimeters in your purlon or your gem, your whatever that shit's called now. Is it called Perlon still? <laughs> I think um, I've got plenty of millimeters in my Perlon, Chris. Um, <laughs> There's always somebody with more millimeters, though, Andrew. Yeah, that's true. Waiting around the corner. <laughs> Jeff Smoot is a rock climber and author based in Hawaii. His latest book is All in Nothing, Inside Free Soloing. Wait, are you in Hawaii? Yeah. Okay. Have you always been there or is this new? No, it's new. Okay. I got tired of sitting in my house during the pandemic, so I moved. (laughs) You moved. You moved to um, where in Hawaii? In in Honolulu. Okay. Just a few blocks from the beach. So I bought a surfboard. You should see me. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the uh, the resident climbing Howley in, in Honolulu. There's a you know there's a bunch of them. The climbing gym is full of us. Okay. Yeah. Andrew, I liked your uh, your your your. Um, article or blog or whatever it was you call it about uh the online, online journal free, thank free, you very free, much. free free <laughs> do you free solo is the new have you climbed mount everest that was <laughs> so spot on because after free solo came out everybody was like hey you're a climber 
do you free solo? <laughs> and, you know, that, that those questions that they were asking me were a part of the impetus in writing the book. I wanted to try to answer those questions. You know, are you, are you crazy? Why do you do that? Are you oh. teaching there or something? You're sitting no. in the classroom of sorts. No, I I just rented an office here, so oh. it's not really full yet. So oh, okay. there's nothing exciting on the walls. I don't have a nice background. So, but <laughs> it's look, quiet. Yeah, that looks like every terrible classroom I've ever been in, though. It. it <laughs> I saw yeah. the whiteboard and stuff, so yeah. I was like, <laughs> "Well, I don't even have the big whiteboard. That one's going over there." Okay. But yeah, we're, I'm. You know, I want to get a couch though for naps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> essential <laughs> for sure <laughs> but yeah so I, I actually kind of noticed um you know reading the book in my head it kind of seemed to be like a three-pronged approach i mean you know, a little more complex than that but you know there was like the personal um your personal stories of free soloing and and what it meant to you and then a historical context and then also contemporary uh you know talking to people contemporarily that are are still free soloing or are at least still alive and once free soloed um, and then the research around it as as far as directly into, you know, what it means to free solo and then also pulling in research that's uh, sort of compelling, that's kind of a, alongside of, of um, what you were getting at with the free soloing mind. Um, but could we start with just talking a little bit about your personal experiences, free soloing, and not necessarily story by story, but just, you know, an overview of your own kind of dip into that world at times. Um, the reason I want to I want to sort of start with that is because, you know, it's easy for people outside of um, this this subject to comment on it and gather research and do the history. But it's I think it's really interesting that you have this extensive background in the thing that you're writing about, which sometimes can be unusual in a book like this. Sure. Yeah, I can talk about that. I think there's a four pronged approach because I think I I finished the book also talking about what we what we do with this. And how we respond to this, especially how, you know, parents who are concerned about their kids being influenced by this might, might you know, respond to it. But as for me, um, I'm just going to start with the caveat that I am always the least interesting character in my books. I'm not trying to overshadow anybody else or anything else. I just, I did have a, you know, a personal relationship with free soloing. I still would do it, but I don't find the opportunity to really go for it. And I, when I'm out there, I don't really feel the need like I used to. So I think the idea of solo climbing, the, my first exposure to it at all was even before I was a climber when I saw the film Solo, Mike Hoover's film that he did in 1974, which is a trip if you watch it now on YouTube. It, it's funny now to watch it, but when I was in fifth grade and saw that, it was, blew my mind. And I just thought, that's really cool. You know, climbing looks like a really cool kind of manly thing to do. And I was, you know, I was kind of struggling with my identity at the time because I was, you know, an adopted kid. Uh, my parents were having their issues and I felt a little lost. And so that was really kind of a guidepost for me. Like that's something I could do and he can do it all by himself. So I can do that all by myself. So, you know, the next thing I'm out climbing every tree in the neighborhood and, every retaining wall and I'm up on the roof getting yelled at by my stepmom and it was fun. So, you know, fast forward, I became a climber, you know, soloing wasn't really a thing that I did or anybody else did. I mean, it was hard enough back in, in the late seventies to lead a five ten without falling and pulling all your gear and decking. So 
the idea of climbing without a rope was really, really scary. But, you know, as I got better, hung around with other climbers, and especially started going on trips. The road trips are really what exposed me to high-level free soloing. My first trip to Joshua Tree in 1982. That was kind of the period when John Backer was really doing a lot of hard free soloing. And he was there. First day I was in Joshua Tree, you know, he shows up and free solos spider line while I'm standing there, you know, struggling, thinking it's going to be scary to do a 5.9. And so it's just like, wow, that is crazy. But that there, there it is again. I'm like, that's really cool. I, you know, I want to be like that. And everybody wanted to be like Backer. I mean, everybody at Joshua Tree was free soloing. The first morning we arrived, we got out of the car and looked over at left ski track, and there's like five or six of those guys, you know, fish, and I don't know who else, but they're free soloing left ski track. And we're just like, what is this place? What is going on? You know, after a couple weeks there, I was kind of getting into it, and then uh, went to Yosemite in the fall, and there's Backer and all those guys again. In, in the meadows and in the valley. And it was just like, this is the thing that they do. So if I, you know, I want to be like that. So I kind of started uh, re- reframing what I, what I want to do in, in climbing. And then Peter Croft, when he showed up in the valley in 85 and just stepped out of the car and did 20 pitches after driving straight through from Squamish, it was, uh, you know, just like, Wow, that's awesome. And Peter was such a cool guy. He's just like, I'm just climbing. He, he didn't care what he was doing. If couldn't climb with somebody, he just went and did it, which is also really appealing because at that time I was hanging around with Todd Skinner and Alan Watts and everybody was, you know, hangdogging, trying to do these 513s and 514s. And that was really boring. I didn't really like working routes. And I didn't like hanging around watching people working rounds. So they'd be on these things for hours. And I just wander off to the other side of the crag and say, hey, that's a cool looking crack. And I'd climb it. And by the end of that trip, I wasn't even hanging out with anybody. I just go off and it's like, you know, hey, it's getting dark out. I think I can go do a couple laps on Harry Daly before it gets totally dark. So I just go off and do stuff like that. One of the things I really like about your writing, Jeff, is that you have a very, I hate using this term, but it's like an every man's perspective. And you're kind of, as you just alluded to, the kind of least interesting character in your story in some sense, because you're surrounded by names that we, we all recognize and know now. And part of the experience that you had that you just kind of um, alluded to here was that idea that free soloing was initially appealing to you through the media that you were, you know, you saw this film, this early film that kind of spoke to you and, and, you know, people were writing stuff and talking about free soloing in a way that kind of captured a a certain romantic essence of risk and reward. It sounds like you were kind of swayed by that. Um, And I, you know, I kind of recall going through a similar period in my own um, climbing upbringing where I was also really susceptible to those kinds of influences. Um, seeing people free solo, hearing the way that they talk about it, the the way that it was kind of rendered in almost romantic terms, but also just, I mean, the, the consequences and the seriousness of it is is so obvious. 
it, it, it's self-explanatory why you would want to do it, but then you either you either get involved and you start doing it and you realize that this is something that you like, or like me, I tried to do it a few times and I was like, this is not for me. This is clearly not something that I'm cut out for. So I, I'm curious to know a little bit, maybe you could just tell our, our, re, our listeners about that process of like being that initial young free soloist and was there struggles? Was there like kind of questioning whether this is, you know, right for you or did you have any kind of self uh, reflection about being influenced by seeing, you know, backer and all the, all the hot shots in Joshua tree, you know, running laps on, on these cracks and just wondering if you were doing things for the right reason, or if you were ready to be at that level what was the um, what was that process like back then for you? When I first started, like you know, I I did some unroped climbs that were really easy before that. Every climber does, whether it's like an approach pitch that's super easy, you know, people just scramble up there. Those were no big deal. I didn't really get any sort of you know feeling about those. But once the switch clicked and I was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna solo this now it really became more serious and I could feel it viscerally. Like when I would be preparing to climb something, even like, you know, the first time I did a a five, eight, I I was terrified. I, you know, had the full on adrenaline rush and just like, Oh man, I shouldn't be doing this. But you know, it's like, I just, I made the decision that I was going to calm myself down and focus and do it because I knew I could do it. So I just was having that, that, that response fight or flight. And I decided to fight, I guess. Uh, And the reward seemed to be worth it. I mean, once you get into that mindset and are able to go do it, it's really just, it's really, you know, I don't want to hype it or anything, but people who've done it and enjoy it can attest that it's just, you know, kind of a, a wonderful mindset to be in, a wonderful place to be. You know, you just have to get past that initial, uh, surge of adrenaline and the, uh, you know, the fear, the anxiety of what might happen to get to what, what does happen. So yeah, it was, it was scary. And there were, you know, there were definitely solos, especially when I was trying to do something maybe a little harder or a little higher that I had to really, you know, think about it, really had to focus and uh, be committed. But I never went out and did it in front of other people. I was always going off and hiding because, you know, one, if I decided to bail, nobody had any expectations. I didn't look like a weakling. I didn't, wasn't the loser because I backed off of, you know, something that everybody else would go, that's, that's, that's nothing, you know? And also I just, I wanted it to be my own experience. I wasn't doing it for anybody else. I didn't really tell other people that I was doing it. Um, I wasn't really joining in all the gang solos that everybody else was doing, you know, except in the evening around the campfire, somebody, you know, pull out the joint or somebody would have too much beer and say, let's go solo the blob. As far as the influence of other people, I mean, Backer was just a really strong influence on me, and not just me. Um, Almost everybody I talked to from back in that era said Backer was a very strong influence on them free soloing. He just was, he just epitomized what was romantic about it, what was mystical about it. Um, You know, he was just so in control, so in focus, so deadly serious when he was climbing. You know, you wanted to have that swagger that he had. The other guys weren't quite always as serious as Backer was. You know, you'd see 
those guys doing, you know, their beat tennis shoes and whatever, just soloing all over the place, like a bunch of clowns <laughs> having a great time. <laughs> it's interesting you talk about uh, being by yourself, um, you know, and, and trying to kind of like keep it away from any sort of audience or things like that. And, and this idea of soloing, it has that side to it where it's like, yeah, it's this thing that, you know, you go out and you do and it's just you by yourself. But then also there's these stories, like you said, the, the group soloing, which is a, it's an interesting era because I don't know, I don't know if it's quite as codified like it was then anymore. Like I spent a lot of time in J Tree and I never saw any of that kind of activity. There was soloers for sure, but that kind of like time from from that gang of people seems to have been pretty unique. But what about this idea that you know a bit of the veil has been lifted, right? We've got. Obviously, you know, we're talking around this this film that came out that, you know, I'd love to have your, you know, your your reaction to as well in here. But, you know, Free Solo comes out and this kind of, again, this sort of mystical thing that was done a little bit away from the media. I mean, obviously, Backard got a ton of media, but I'm always like, yeah, every every dude who trad climbs and a lot of women, too, will eventually solo a little bit, you know, and it's 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 like always out there. But. Um, but what about that? This, you know, you've decided to write this book about it to kind of talk about this thing that again is, and, and even analyze it scientifically, this thing that was sort of almost shrouded in sort of mystery and mysticism for so long. Um, you know, how do you feel about adding your two cents to the, the sort of a- analysis of this thing that even you said, like Backer had this sort of mysticism around it? Yeah. When I first started the project, I wasn't, well, first of all, it was going to start just as a, a, a magazine article and just was going to focus on a the, what? A, 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 a an article. What? Yeah. A mega, they don't have those. Any, they don't have no. those anymore, but they, <laughs> right. well, they do. There's, there's a couple left, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 But, so, uh, is that like an online journal? <laughs> some, it's something like that, but they actually like print it out. Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Uh, and I was just going to focus on the, you know, the influence that that film was clearly having, uh, and um, you know, Alex Honnold's sort of denial that any kid was going to be influenced by the film, and the parents' reactions that I was hearing that their kids were, you know, the way the kids were talking about it, and their fears that that, that the, the kids might just go do it. But then it just sort of ballooned up into something something bigger because I'm just a little obsessive sometimes. And once I get going, I, then I have like a 200,000-word manuscript. And, you know, I've gone down all the rabbit holes and it has you have to do something with that. So I don't know. I'm In a, in a way, you know, since I'm not some big-name free soloist, you know, I've had a little bit of trepidation about like, well, you know, who am I to write about this? But then... Because I'm not a big name free soloist, maybe it's okay. Because the big name free soloists, they they write about themselves, or they have people writing about them all the time. They're being interviewed. There's articles about them, so we know about them. We know what they think, or at least what they will tell us they think. But I thought, you know, I if I put myself into this, and I, I psychoanalyze myself basically and put that out there, that may be useful. That may be helpful to somebody else. And it, you know, it, in that respect, it's kind of my perspective, not necessarily everybody's perspective and not necessarily the final answer, just a perspective uh, that hadn't really been explored 
yet to try to help make sense of, of you know, free soloing for myself and then, you know, for others. To me, reading it, it was essential that you had free soloed, to be honest with you, and not just done it, you know, like Magnus Mitbo to, like, see what it was all about, but, like, you, you had taken it seriously and, and you know, you'd, you'd self-reflected on it. And, I, I mean, I just couldn't possibly stomach uh, a, a non-climbing journalist to tackle this subject. I mean, we, we saw it. We, we read it over and over again after Free Solo came out, and it was just like, Jesus, you know, you just, I just couldn't handle it. Um, so for me, I think the book hinges on that experience because it, it's such a, you know, to use the cliche, if you have to ask, you, you'll never know kind of thing. Like, it really ha- has to go into, you know, I think someone has to have a foot in it or else we're, I don't know, you just can't analyze it from the outside, in my opinion. And, and But I thought that it reminded me that, okay, this guy is not, He's not just some guy that tried it a little bit, you know. He's ha- he has a little bit of a experience with it more than I did, and uh, again, I thought that was sort of essential to your credibility as far as talking about it at all. And you had yeah. nothing. I mean, a, a pro sort of guy that's like still doing it and still, you know, making some sort of fame off of it isn't going to be able to necessarily talk about it honestly in, in a way that we can we can sort of relate to either. Just to add a little more color to um, what the what the book is like, or one of the prongs of the book, there's a, a really wonderful section in the in the front of the book about that kind of does like a uh, history of of rock climbing, but it's done through the lens of the of free soloing, and um, that alone was really a pleasure to read because it was just such a a nice tour of decades and uh, you know a few hundred years of people all the way back in you know a thousand years ago kind of the more primitive um societies who had used kind of free soloing to access cliffs and so forth and so it was kind of a it's just an interesting um way to approach climbing history um but i i was kind of really interested to pivot to um where you went with getting into the psychology of this and one of the things that really caught my attention was this idea of high place phenomenon or HPP. Oh, yeah. um, why don't you, yeah. why don't you tell us, because this is an experience that um, I've had. Um, I feel like probably most people have had and I hadn't seen it identified and named in such a way. So why don't you tell us what HPP is all about? Sure. I could do that. First of all, I do have to give credit to David Smart for turning me on to some of the, the old stories I was talking with him and he's like, here, let me send you something. And he had these little, you know, paragraphs and things he'd clipped about the Australian climbers and the birdmen of Rapa Nui and, and all that stuff. And so that was just really a great, a great, um, you know, tip to, to go explore that. And I, I, that's, that is also one of my favorite things, just looking back at it and reframing free soloing, like getting people out of the mindset of that it's just a, you know, privileged young white man thing to do, but it's really something that culturally has been done for thousands of years. So we've had, yeah. Dave, we've had David Smart on the podcast. You guys can go back and listen to that. We um he he wrote a book about Paul Pruce, um, who is also in in your book. I assume that was influ- influenced by um, David Smart's work as well. But um, but yeah, and anyway, I didn't mean to cut He's you off. He's written a book about Kamichi as well. And Kamichi as well, read, yeah. and yeah. he was a soloist as well. Like he was definitely on the on the ego end of soloing, but um, to kind of poke people in the eye, but but nevertheless, a, a, an accomplished and and probably the 
the strongest of the time. But back so, to the P, what is it called? The HPP, High HPP. Place Phenomenon. Right. Le, it's I, a government loan that is forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> if you, give, if you exactly. follow your death, you're forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the first, uh, the first time... The first time I went roped climbing was, uh, other than practicing, was an ascent of the tooth here in, in Washington, or there in Washington. I'm not in Washington right now. But I went and did it with a, a guide service and as part of a climbing instruction course. And, you know, it's like 400 feet of easy rock climbing. And you get to the summit, and it's really exposed. And I got to the top and looked off the east face, and just had this weird feeling like I was needed to jump off or I was being pulled towards it, which freaked, totally freaked me out. So I had to go sit down and grab the summit block and just kind of hang on for dear life for a minute, and just pretend I was okay. But I really didn't understand what that was at all. And for a long time, whenever I'd get to the summit of an exposed mountain, I would just have this weird, like, it just felt like almost like some something out of the matrix like i was just being pulled like something was calling or trying to pull me over the edge and it really kind of freaked me out so i you know i'd never told anybody about that but as i was working on the book you know i came upon some research about it and also edgar allan poe's um you know famous story uh where he really just almost nails it describing somebody's the feeling of 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 that I found that it it's really just related to anxiety and it's like your brain is giving you something like a, a an extra push to really send the message that this is dangerous you need to get back you know and then there's some people who, if they have you know their brain their brain isn't wired right they they might actually do it but most people it's just like oh this is scary i need to get back I suppose some people, when they experience that, they'll never go up to a high place again because it's such a weird feeling, and they're just like, "That's scary. I can't go up there." Um, I, I did. So is I it, had to is go it back. the anxiety that you might fall, um, or is it the anxiety of not knowing what it would be like to fall that is triggering your, the brain in that moment? I talked to one researcher, Rowena Fletcher Wood, about that. It's really just like. Yeah, it's anxiety is a fear of the unknown and what's going to happen. And w when you're up there, your brain gives you that kick saying, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> Get back. This right. is what's going to happen. You're going to go over the edge and you're going to fall to your death. Here, let me like give you a nudge from behind so you can really feel it. Um, I had a, I, I think I told this story on this podcast before, but I had a very um, weird manifestation of this experience where I was in the Verdone and I had heard a story about a guide who had committed suicide on the ledge that we were currently at, like, you know, 700 feet up the wall. And I felt like I saw a ghost or it was maybe just my brain manifesting the ghost of this guy plummeting to his death. But it was, it, it was like, um, I, I wonder now in hindsight, if it wasn't that anxiety of just really putting myself in this person's shoes and either like you know visualizing this this person doing it in in order to in some ways just like attenuate that anxiety of like just imagining what it was like but it was just a very strange experience of feeling that pull 
over the edge. Yeah, it's an experience in some sense of like feeling like you're not in control of yourself for a very brief moment and then you kind of get it together and you're like, okay, you know, I'm not going to throw myself off the edge. But there's just that split second that's just so frightening of wondering what it would be like or just realizing how tantalizingly close death is in that moment. Like all it would take is one step. And it's an experience, I don't know, maybe you've experienced this while free soloing, but it's one that I haven't found while climbing. It's only, you know, uh, at the safety of a, you know, flat ground, like at the top of a cliff or something like that. No, I've never experienced that while free soloing. I don't Mm -hmm. think I could free solo if I would experience that while I was up there. That would just be too much. Um, But I, but, you know, I think, you know, I did when I was a younger climber, I'd get, you know, if I get, I get 300 feet off the ground to an exposed ledge and I'd just be terrified. Like we got to go down. And my partners were kind of the same. Like we got up on one climb and nobody was willing to lead the next pitch. So it's like, okay, we're going to go down because we're all scared. But I wanted to work through that and not have that happen anymore. Um, so it was a long process of like, you know, building up my confidence building up that control where i felt like i'm i've got this i don't need to feel afraid and you know that never happened again except when i just arrive on this a pointy summit and stand there and go whoa this is crazy you've done all this research now you've written stories about all these free soloists and climbing over the years do you have any kind of um universal threads that you can draw about the psychology that motivates people to do this? What, what do you think the type of person is if there is such a type? Can, can it be distilled down to a few simple things or is it just kind of mysterious? I don't think that there's a, a one size fits all description of the, the average free soloist because they all have or had different backgrounds different reasons for wanting to do it, different needs that it fulfilled. You have people who have anxiety that they need to overcome. They have messy lives that they need to feel a sense of control. They may have depression or some sort of um, disorder that that helps them, helps, you know, helps them get through or manage these are. All, I'm, I'm just going to point out that these are all negative characteristics you're pointing out. Is is there? A, <laughs> oh no! I mean, is there a free solo? Should I get just like the... psychologically healthy, but just has like huge balls? <laughs> the, the, yeah, like, sure, sure. Peter, They're, right? Peter, Peter Croft seems pretty straight up. Yeah, <laughs> I, was gonna say, Peter, I mean, I, I don't know what his inner life is like, but every time I've met him, he seems just like a, a sort of joyful little cherub. That's like everything's great. I'm going climbing today. <laughs> Right. I mean, you is are are you know is Yabo the same as Backer the same as Reardon the same as Peter the same as Potter the same as Honold? No. I mean, I, yeah, I was actually going to comment on that. Having read the whole book, I mean, I think one of the things you actually sort of strive to do in a way is is with because you know it's also a series of sh- sort of short profiles of free soloists. Aside from the historical ones that you know, many climbers will have talked to or heard of or read about already, and that's I think one of the things that really does shine through is that you've got this whole swath of people, you know, genders and and 
you know, backgrounds and psychologies and things like that. I mean, you know, from, from Yabo who, you know, was, was clearly struggling with, with mental health issues, you know, that led to his suicide eventually to someone like Hazel Finlay, who, you know, again, we're, we're, you know, we don't know what our deepest, darkest inner world is like, but she seems pretty well put together and, and understanding of her, her motivations and, and the reasons she does things. So I think that's actually one of the distinct positives of the book is like, this is a, this is a large group of people um, with a large group of backgrounds that find some, if not just pleasure, um, you know, some benefit, some positive in, in doing this thing. It's such a variety of, 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 you know, characters and, you know, mentalities and approaches and, and whatever. Yeah. You just, you run, you run the range from people who, who are, you know, a little bit challenged emotionally or mentally and all the way up to people who just like they should be, you know, they're going to be running, running the world someday. So if there is a thread and you just mentioned control, that's kind of a broad idea and it can be control of a, you know, like we talked to Molly Mitchell, who does, if not free soloing, she does scary roots and she talks about how it like quiets her anxiety. It, it, it puts her back in kind of the driver's seat. And, and to me, even with you know, again, this broad spectrum of people that seem to be at least a bit of an underlying theme of when I'm doing this thing, you know, it's, I become, you know, extraordinarily in the moment, extraordinarily focused, extraordinarily in control, um, was a big part of, of at least the, you know, the folks you quoted and talked to seemed to be a theme and, and, and something that ran through, sort of their attitudes towards free soloing. And one thing I found too is that some of those things were sort of an extreme highlight or an extreme version of what I hear from climbers all the time, whether they're on a rope or not, um, is that, you know, when they're climbing something hard, it puts them directly in, you know, it's cliche, but to say in the moment or to, to remove anxiety from their head or worries or things like that. I mean, Doing the Enorma cast, I've heard that over and over and over again. So what can you say about that control theme or that idea of, of you know, this heightened experience that sort of disperses clutter in the brain or, or brings you to a place that's, uh, that's of hyper-focus? You know, I felt going into the project that control was going to be, um, you know, one of the, one of the main themes. Um, and I, I guessed that that was probably one of the things that attracted me to climbing, to be able to gain that sense of control, and then free soloing to just really take that to the next level. Because when you're, you know, when you're up there climbing a hard route, especially if you know the pro's not all that good and you have to keep it together, you do, or or you fail and you know you shouldn't be up there. But when you have to hang on, when you have to execute the moves to keep from falling off and to keep from falling off and dying, you just dial in so much more and you are able to control fear control anxiety and you have to when you're up there because if fear or anxiety if you get that while you're up there in the middle of some hard climb or um, while free soloing that's almost a death sentence that's usually when you read like uh, steph davis's book or alex honnold on half dome when uh you know when fear got out of the box, that was a very scary moment for them um, because it was just like kind of a do or die moment. And they had to get that fear back under control before they could keep going. 
So there, there's this um, thing that a uh, phenomenon that appears to happen to uh, to us as we age and our hair recedes and our testosterone levels plummet and so forth in which we... No, my hair receded because I have too much testosterone. That's a scientific <laughs> fact. Just Whatever, so you Chris. know. <laughs> um, where, you know, you get to old age and uh, you, some of the the these mantras about risk and uh, the romanticization of it become less salient and you kind of go from the guy who's like, you know, this is like the most badass thing in the world. This is like what, you know, risk is so important to, to be able to understand what it is, to experience it, to take ownership of the responsibility of um, engaging in risky things and manage that and overcome it. These are hugely important things, but I've, there's, it's also true that a lot of older climbers at some point begin to kind of poo-poo these things and say, what's the point? And, you know, um, why are we celebrating something like free soloing, which has killed, you know, some of my heroes like John Backer and Michael Reardon or whoever it is. So where do you land personally? I, I mean, I mean, you look like a spring chicken, so I'm not trying to make you sound like an old guy, but I'm just... I'm I'm curious to know you've you've clearly you know been around the block with climbing you've you've been a free soloist in your youth you're now revisiting this um this subject in this like deep intellectual way where you're really thinking about the consequences and the the um the aftermath the the, the people who are left in the wake of these deaths how do you feel about the um the importance of of preserving this culture of free soloing in climbing risk is just such a vital part of climbing and I know you can't eliminate risk entirely. I mean, you know, somebody's going to drop you while they're belaying you or, you know, something's going to happen. Um, but you know, I'm not saying we need to preserve the culture of free soloing. I think, you know, that's just up to each individual to decide what it is they want to do, what their tolerance for risk is, and whether the rewards of free soloing, whatever they are for that person, are worth engaging that risk. Free soloing isn't illegal now. I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about that too much. I, I do hope that uh, free soloists uh, continue to have a very low mortality rate because if there's a spike in that kind of thing, I think some land managers are going to start trying to control that. So you guys who are out there and gals who are out there free soloing, keep your shit together for everyone else, okay? <laughs> you talked about like the influence that film had on you. And it's like not even really free soloing. It's, it's if I remember right, like at times the person's aid climbing, right? And they have a, isn't there like a close up of their rope slowly cutting over an edge and stuff? Yeah. Is there's the there's, same film. Yeah, yeah. A, yeah. And you get to see I the, the pitons slowly coming out right, of the crack right. and all just all so, kinds of hokey but stuff. This was enough, you know, to make you probably set you up for that day. You saw backer, you know, you were already, it was already simmering and, you know, Andrew and I sort of poo pooed this idea that all these bros were going to try to solo El Cap after seeing Free Solo, um, which specifically I don't think happened, but this idea that, you know, people are like, this is cool. It's, it's really hard not to romanticize it. It's, it's even if you want to talk about in your, in your book, you know, you talk about these heightened levels, these, you know, these hyper focuses, these, this idea that like, 
you know, at least I took away from it. Like rope climbing can give you this, but man, on free soloing, it's like extra powerful, you know, and all that language, even if it's clinical, even if it's, if it's like, um, analytical, if you will, it's definitely like this shit is the shit. And it's hard to get away from that when you're talking about free soloing to someone, you know, that has free soloed or, or again, mythologizing the way climbing mythologizes Hersey and, and backer and and you know to name two that passed away while free soloing and then croft who lives on and maybe has slowed down maybe not who knows um but yeah it's it, I, and i'm not like accusing you of anything or really like asking for more than a comment but it's interesting how we as climbers it's just you can't get around it it's fucking cool and we think it's cool and you know <laughs> like you you know, you can have this disclaimer like, don't do it, kids, unless you're ready. But we all know that if the certain kid sees it and is, you know. It's it's the only, uh, part, it's the only part cables, of climbing the that, that's won an Academy Award. So, yeah, that. <laughs> exactly. And so, well, let me ask you that, actually, aside from that comment, because uh, I think you've put your two cents in about that. But um, when I talk to Don Climbers about Free Soul of the film, the thing I tell them is that, like, this was the one climbing movie that impressed climbers more than it impressed non-climbers. You know, like usually it's like, yeah, that's pretty cool and all, but you know, this is how it really went down and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you, as a non-climber, you think it's like super cool. But as a climber, I was like, holy shit, you know? And as a <laughs> climber who climbed that route, I was just like, do you know what I mean? Like it, it went beyond, I think for climber climbers, because we were like, yeah, that you have no idea what that person really did when they crossed that fricking, you know, the, the, the traverse. You're a, a guy that free sold with the, with the greats, if you will. Like, what was your impression of that film? The first time I saw it, I was, I was riveted and, you know, I guess it helps to know that he pulled it off. Right, but you that, you just get that, sucked into the suspense yeah. of it, and they really yeah. just ratchet it up, and then you just yeah, you get to that that boulder problem pitch and the music, and don't, you know it just really like just twist gets you all twisted, and you're just like oh man, and uh, you know until he flashes that grin, you're just like oh fuck, this is like so scary. Uh, and, Isn't and it you, weird how that like you know he lives, but in that moment you're like he's gonna fall and die. <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, that's why I got the. I think that that part is the Academy Award moment because it tricked us all into being worried that he was going to die, even though we know he didn't. I mean, I seen the guy. I can talk to him like right live. Right, right. Yeah. So sweat. You know, the sweaty palms. Every climber I talk to, they're like, yeah, sweaty palms. It's like you know, I almost couldn't watch. I mean, I knew you know, you're just like Mikey down there going, I can't, I can't watch while this is. This is happening, you know. I don't want to watch my friend fall to his death, and it's just like you know, you know, he lives. But it was it was scary. But I've watched the film so many times now. It's just like it was it was the an in flight movie when I I flew to the UK a few years ago. So I watched it three times on the way there and three times on the way back. And I you have a problem, Jeff. I um, I watched it without the sound. Oh my god! Um, right, I just like you know. I tried to like say so I I kind of was looking at it from a more critical not just from the climbing sequences but like okay like is this a good film I mean it, you know everybody was really mm-hmm. you know attentive to this film but you know what did they do to make this film 
so good. Because the climbing sequences, you can go on YouTube and just watch the climbing sequences. And it takes like four minutes. <laughs> it's just not really very dramatic. Although, I will say, re-watching the, uh, the boulder problem sequence, there's just that moment. There's that moment when he's like going, going out and he's, you know, pinching the bread loaf and he's got the thumb and he's like, puts his foot out and he just rocks. There's just a slight, if you just watch it again, there's just this slight rocking. And then he pulls himself back in. And it's just like he hardly moves, but it's just like, oh, man, that is just like, that's the moment. That's the moment that killed me when I watched it the first time because it just was like, oh, he's teetering. He's just barely teetering and just don't know what's going to happen. You know, I have this kind of circle written here on my notes here. It's like your thoughts on soloing and then you write the book, you do all this research, and then you come back to your thoughts on soloing. And I'm, I'm more talking about personally. You're someone who's self-reflective you know, you're, you're an author. So you've had these notions about who you are, why you free solo. Um, did anything that you started learning in the book, you know, when you would get into the psychology of it, make you kind of reassess or reflect back um, and change what you originally thought about your motivations to, to solo and um, who you are as a soloist when you went through the book? Sort of like what were the like aha moments in your own kind of motivations when you started doing the research? I think I find I found out that anxiety was a bigger driver for me than than anything else. Just where that came from and how how to better deal with it. So you know, is that is that something that you struggle with to this day, or was this just in in hindsight you were realizing that you were an anxious kid and that was more of a motivation for your climbing than you had realized? I think it was more of motivation for my climbing then than I realized. It's what kind of gave me the need for control that free soloing gave me. Um, I still have anxiety. I think I manage it really well I, because I'm more aware of it now. I'm more aware of what I can do to get through it or get past it. And it's not stopping me now from doing things that I want to do. Um, I mean, I, I'm afraid of the water and I live in Hawaii and I want to go surfing really bad. And I bought a surfboard. I said to myself, like, I, I have to learn to swim. I have to be a very strong swimmer before I'm going to go out there and do that. So little by little, I've got myself out swimming, you know, a mile every morning now. So, you know, it's just one of those things. Like I want that reward. This is what I need to do to get to that reward. And I'm not going to let this fear or this anxiety stop me. But, you know, I'm not going to just go jump on a board and say cowabunga and hit the waves because, you know, that's that's a bad idea. Just like, you know, getting out of the car and going and climbing something without a rope when you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, what you just said is a very climber mentality that's like, I've made this observation on the show before about the difference between free soloing and something like base jumping, where, you know, with each move upward as a free soloist, you're kind of entering more danger and, and uh, more risk and closer to, uh, you know, killing yourself. And so there's a slowness to it that is part of the process of of climbing that allows reflection and allows you to kind of question whether you're in, in the right space at that time. But that is sort of notably absent from other kind of gravity adventure, you know, sports like, you know, take base jumping, which is extremely dangerous. It's merely a matter of counting down from three and, you know, throwing yourself off a cliff and then you're kind of committed to doing it. Um, and so what you just described too, I think is, 
if there is a um, a lesson or some kind of yeah some kind of lesson to be drawn from the value of climbing and the value of doing things like free soloing, um, it's that it informs a, 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 a methodical and kind of intelligent approach to doing something else that you're scared of, which is, in this case is surfing. You know, you're, you're out there swimming every day for a mile and getting your... What about like the influence, this instant media? Is, is that something that concerns you about the culture of, of free soloing? You know, notably in free solo, you know, Peter Croft kind of comes out against soloing for the camera. That... And, you know, I'm quote unquote old enough to remember when, you know, that was like a big no, no. And, and even, even backer got shit for it on occasion when he would solo for the camera back in the day and things like that. Cause it was this idea that you do it for yourself. And, and if you're soloing for the camera, you're not, you know, it's not a pure motivation. And I think you address that a little bit in the book, but does it concern you again, if there is a culture of free soloing? Um, this kind of instant filming thing. It's not even social media. It's the fact that we all have cameras in our pockets at all times. And um, it's very easy to create that media. Yeah, that that is something that concerned me uh, just with the way that soloing is portrayed in social media and the attention it's given even, you know, in some, I'm not sure if it's mainstream media, but, uh, you know, ever since free solo, it gets a lot of attention. Um, but, you know, let me, let me start off though, by saying I'm, I'm, my, my views are very hypocritical because when I was younger, I did uh, participate in a, a filmed free soloing extravaganza at a local crag that made it on a local show. And, you know, it's really, it's really painful footage to watch now. I still have that. I, I'm not posting it on social media because <laughs> it's, it's old and embarrassing, but I did that. I, I got yeah, on, and you do come clean about it in the book. I yeah. got on, I got on TV, free soloing, and looked really badass and everything. Even though it was only five six, but you know it was it was still cool. But but yeah, I I, I feel like people can just do it and post for you know reasons that maybe we didn't have the opportunity for. I don't know. Thirty years ago, if we'd have had our cell phones in our pockets and YouTube and Instagram, would we have been doing that? Yeah, probably. So, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be critical because that's just the, the landscape now. But I do think it does create, you know, a kind of, well, every, that person's doing it. I want to be cool like them. So I'm going to do it too. And I'm going to put it on my social media so everybody can see I did it. So I can get that kind of ego boost from it. So it is, it is kind of maybe too, too easy to promote that. Uh, in ways that maybe aren't, I don't know, I don't want to use the word responsible because that's what old people say, but <laughs> maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not responsible to just be posting it for some reasons. Um, I don't know. It's, you know, it's hard to judge. Um, sure. But I did notice that the like the year that Free Solo came out, there seemed to be a lot of short films about free soloing that popped up. You know, Hazel Finley, Matt Bush, some some other people started putting together little reels about, you know, oh, I free soloed these cracks in Joshua Tree or, I you know, I did this classic route and I free soloed it. Here's my five minute video kind of thing. A little bit jumping on the bandwagon to like, hey, I want some attention too. look at me. At the same time, did we see an uptick in accidents? I'm not sure we did. So I think I mean, I I think we did. I think we're hearing about them more. 
Right. Um, I don't know if there are really more, but I feel like I hear about more free soloing accidents now right. than I did before. And that just may be because the, you know, the media is more attuned mm -hmm. to that. I sense there's an uptick, but I don't have any statistical mm -hmm. data to bear Well, just this that. week, um, a guy named Jonas Hines, who sounded like a pretty prodigious young 25-year-old dude from Austria or South Tyrol or something like that, um, just died in the soloing somewhere out in the Dolomites. So yeah, I mean, you, you actually don't hear very often about like the really good soloists falling. It's, it seems more people who, whose names you'd never heard of before, but people who, people who've like kind of amassed a pretty impressive tick list of free solos, um, often aren't the victims. It seems like, um, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Uh, yeah, I I do. The, I mean, the people you you know about, it seems really rare that that they they fall uh, while soloing, um, but they do. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I always had that in my head too. But then, you know, there's cer certainly some very you know obvious examples that you point out in your book and that are in history as well. I mean, obviously, like the King himself fell free soloing John Backer and. Uh, you know, Derek Hersey did. And, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to kind of totally hang your hat on that. Nobody ever eats it, especially if they keep going. And, and again, like, you know, at least Croft, you know, even has said that he's, you know, he doesn't do it as much anymore at the level that he once did. You know, it's interesting because it's like, there's so much of this pushing yourself and Andrew I've talked about this a ton like climbing and pushing your abilities is is like kind of one and the same like that's how we that's how we sort of frame climbing until we're probably over the hill like you know we frame it that way for so often and and you know if you frame it that way with free soloing which certainly backer did for a time trying to do harder and harder free solos it it does seem to be sort of like my jokey A5 thing like the end game is that you eventually you know, don't, you don't come back if you just keep pursuing that. And, you know, just sort of logically that if you push and push and push, you will push past the edge, so to speak. Yeah. There's um, one of, one of the people I, I talked to my friend, Justin Martin, who had never, you know, he'd never free soloed before when I, when I met him and then he started doing it and suddenly became very enthusiastic about it. And it wasn't because I said it was cool or anything. He just found a route. He did it. He thought it was great. But, but his comment, you know, was he, he's always looking for that line out there. Uh, he doesn't know where it is. And I suppose he hopes he never finds it. But that line is out there, I think, for everyone. But it's our nature to push and push and get as close to that line as we can, which, you know, in free soloing is, yeah, well, it's not, not always a good idea to approach too close to that line. A lot of times when I was reading about this, um, you know, and, and the psychologists and the researchers that you were talking to, you know, in the book and were, you know, again, elucidating all these like benefits and all these ways in which the mind sort of like becomes properly engaged, you know, these, these sort of, I don't know, almost mythic terms of the way our brain is supposed to work is like highlighted and in, in all these things. And I started actually to think about addiction and, and certainly you know, climbing can be an addiction. I've, I've talked to plenty of, of guests on the show to where, you know, climbing 
was you know a classic addiction where where it was it was impacting negatively many parts of people's lives because of their need to go even just roped rock climbing but you know did you ever in your research encounter that kind of thing where you know this need to have this benefit and you know the, the layman thinks adrenaline and you know your book goes a thousand miles in the other direction to try to prove that old old adage wrong but there is this like benefit and i think about you know i'm a musician and i've paid attention to the history of rock and roll and like the the amount of drug addiction and and it's clear that like the high that someone gets from playing live music to you know to crowds that are going crazy for night after night after night and then they go home and they're like regular life sucks like i need this thing in my life and you know when you were talking about free soloing i'm like god that could be this thing that you you do enough and you get that high enough and you get that benefit enough that you know going grocery shopping and dealing with paying bills and family and things like that could be a real drag i wrote something about it because i know that the addictive nature of flow you can just become addicted to the flow experience and and maybe because you like that flow experience that you get you know climbing free soloing running lots of different things can get you into a flow state but you just like being in that state so much that you you keep going back and you ratchet it up so you can intensify that experience and that can be addictive you know i heard from at least one professional that said that no it's not addictive it's something different than addiction but you know, it's something that you have a very strong impulse towards and want to go back to do again and again because of the rewards, because of the feeling you get when you do it. It sounds a lot like addiction. And I think climbers get addicted to the feeling of climbing and uh, extreme climbers get addicted to the feelings they get when they are doing extreme climbing. Uh, I think Mark Twight, he, he struggled with the question of what do I do when I come back down? What, what do I do? I, I feel lost here. I need to be up there. That's where I feel at home. That's where I belong. And so it, it can be a struggle. Yeah, buy, you know, going grocery shopping and paying the bills. <laughs> That's terrible. Why would anybody do that when they could go climbing? I mean, it, it reminds me of the, of the combat thing, too. I mean, it, that's a really common you know, phenomenon with that is that people who, who get these heightened experiences – on a tour of duty somewhere like Afghanistan, come home and, and regular life is, I mean, they're literally, their body needs whatever they were riding on over there. And, and I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not going to like go as far as to sort of name names, but I certainly know some histories of some of these climbers we've been talking about would certainly have a lot of aspects of, you know, again, this activity that is, you know, detrimental to a bunch of parts of your lives. And I think a lot of people who, climbers who free solo frequently, who are with, let's say, partners in a relationship who either climb without free soloing or don't climb, you know, it's certainly the idea of them going out and climbing without a rope can cause a ton of friction within a family. And, um, you know, and Mark Twight is no stranger to difficult relationships. And I don't think he would, you know, dispute that with me um, having talked to mark a bunch um this idea that yeah it, it does affect all these parts of your lives when the person or the people 
who will deal with the consequences of it um, aren't in agreement with your decision to do it. Right. I think I think I was lucky in that respect because I don't think I was ever in a relationship with someone who really understood what I was doing. Probably <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> probably because I was going off by myself and I wasn't right. really publicizing it or really like saying very much about it. You know, it's like when my mom saw me on TV, she f- just freaked out because she had no idea when I said I'm going climbing what I was really doing. Yeah, my mom doesn't know what A5 is either. So, <laughs> so that's, that's helpful. At least back when I was doing it in my 20s, I just went climbing. She was like, oh, he goes climbing all the time. It's fine. <laughs> so what's your, um, I mean, we've, we've been talking about death, but what's the, what's the benefit of approaching that line? What's Maybe you can invoke one of your own experiences or one an experience from your book, from uh, your research. But what what is the what is the reason to solo? What is the benefit? What's the joy? What's the why do we want to seek that ephemeral, deadly line? I don't know if I have a good answer for that question because again, it's unique to each individual. I think for me, I mean, the reason I tried to push for the line. I'll admit was mostly egotistical that I, you know, I was working my way up through the grades and was on sighting five tens and soloing some five elevens and thought, Hey, I can do a five twelve, And that was, you know, that was almost a mistake. I don't think I would have died on that one, but it wouldn't have been pretty. But after that, I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push anymore. Um, that was too close. But I, I, I did that because other people were doing it. And I thought, if they're doing it, I can do it too. And, um, you know, I had that, that moment where I was simul soloing with Peter Croft and just thought, Peter has a lot of confidence in me. I must be pretty good. And so I'm going to go do this dumb thing. And I did it and walked away and never went back to do anything like that again. Some people, they're spiritual seekers. They're just looking for that place, whatever it is. Um, you know, some people, you know, they just want to, um, yeah, I don't know. They, they just, I don't know. You can edit, right? Well, let me, add, let me put it this way. Um, you started the show talking about, you know, you'd moved to Hawaii and you don't really have an opportunity to, to solo, but you would if you could. Why do you so, keep doing it? What 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 what's appealing to you? Put it that way. I was at Smith Rock a month ago for two weeks, and uh, Smith Rock would be a terrible place to free solo. I think everyone agrees that Smith Rock is not a good place to free solo. But I did a couple routes, and I still I just had those thoughts again, like, "Hey, I, you could solo this." You know, it's like you know, thirty feet of five ten, and then it's five eight to the top be no big deal. It'd be cool. I could just see myself. I could feel myself being sucked up there. And I can't tell you why. There would be no reason for it. Sometimes it feels like the thing to do, but I didn't need to do it. I didn't really feel that I had the drive to do it. And so, yeah, now I can't, I can't tell you like the younger me would have been like, hell yes, I'm going to do that because I can now it's just like, yeah, I could do that. I, I, can, I can feel it. I can feel that I could go up there. I can't tell you why I would. In fact, I didn't. So there you go.
Sometimes here at The Runout, some of the best stuff happens after we think the interview is officially over. Do you feel like there's an ending in there, Chris? Or? Uh, no, unless there's you have no ending. Else. <laughs> just be like, just, Alex just freaking fled. He just left. <laughs> I'll just fade you out like a, like a 70s rock album. <laughs> no, no. While, while, I'm, uh, while I'm rambling about environmental stuff, you just start to fade yeah, into your fade, outro yeah. music. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like, he's still talking. That'd he's be still talking. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, cool, man. Um, you got anything else, Andrew? No, I think that was a great interview. Yeah, totally. Oh, I always fun. love chatting with you guys because it's so so uh, core, you know? I don't need to... There's no... Yeah, there's just no... There's no quality control, you know? You just say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> the Rope Guns over at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Get those often hilarious and candid outtakes along with dedicated bonus episodes, including our upcoming review of the awesome and oft-maligned movie Cliffhanger. For all the goods, and to support the normal spray too, head over to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. We wouldn't be doing this without our rope guns. On today's final bit, we feature an original poem by climber and friend of the show, Madeline Sorkin. This poem I wrote this past spring after completing a free ascent in a day of the hallucinogen wall in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, and also after spending a lot of time hanging around on that route, rebolting, replacing the old unsafe bolts. A narrow passage. One. We enter the canyon's draw at first light. Our clinking gear on swaying hips echoes softly on close walls as feet fall into gravity's step. On the rim above, turkeys unroost and call. A high-throated waddling song. I respond a tongue-whipping high note, wait for their gaggle giggling a response as I laugh joy into the otherwise quiet. Down ropes, we lower past the steepest drop, and feet begin again, picking through poisonous ivy round the nose of the North Chasm view wall, rising 1,500 feet to sky, below the white hum of water, pushing on elephant-sized boulders. We contour the vine slope, the hum fills us, and our minds unwind, closing the gap between us and the climb. Two. The wind, like our fears, blows through us. The blowing empties us. We climb a metamorphic Milky Way as clouds sift through themselves, shelving nothing. Our bodies pulse warm, blood against rosy veins of quartz and clay banded in slow time, magma cooling into vertical relief. High on the steepening wall, we are quiet, eyes closed, asking for passage, Hands hang, heavy, foreheads lean for stone. We make our bird nest here. Years pile over days spent taking, giving ourselves away in this canyon. Yet one day will be my last. Sweet cherries choke in my throat. Eyes glaze, the bent shadows rise, up faults and folds as the sun descends. Devour me as I eat you up. The nowness of our fire, consoled, studied, felled, 
in these layers of ancient yearning. Three, the climber is ready now, prepares breath, gathering, releasing, having given away certainty what remains. She arrives again, hands barely working, yet there at work, holding her key, the edges set, practical, intimate, fitting just so into the crux. Finds her body hovering atop a globe of blood, dipping pen in kin in gratitude, offers a trembling, a burning she can't explain. Hope congregates in that red room without doors, or walls for that matter, yet in this mattering moment, she loves like the flapping bluebird suspended at the window. For an instant, a narrow passage opens and they go through. just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalus, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 it's, no, no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.